turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the, let's see, Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. The week is almost over. Super Bowl Sunday coming up. A lot going on. Anyway, we're glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing. Sam Maupin is engineering. Today, we're going to share a classic interview I had with Pastor Wendell Robinson. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. And we'll take a look at some of the reviews of the Grammy performance of Unholy. Hmm. That's all coming up in the second hour of today's program. But first, to look at some of the day's headlines. Well, Oregonians in higher elevations, well, we could wake up. With snow on the ground, Valentine's morning. Heavy snow is expected to fall in the Cascades and the Coast Range. Well, snow could stick in the higher spots of Portland, but downtown will likely only stay wet with snowflakes in the air. So a little snow on Valentine's Day. A cold front's arriving on Monday. It's going to bring rain to Portland. We'll open the doors to colder air from the Gulf of Alaska. Weather models show snow levels dropping to 1,500 feet early Monday evening and further lowering to 500 feet for a sticking snow early Tuesday morning. Uh, it's too early to project snow totals in the Willamette Valley, and meteorologists are saying, but if showers are heavy enough, areas at 500 feet and higher could see one to two inches of snow sticking Monday overnight into Tuesday morning. Downtown Portland could see snowflakes or a rain mix in the air, but a westerly flow is expected to keep temperatures above 32 degrees, meaning the roads will stay wet with no sticking snow. Uh, People planning to travel through the Coast Range on Tuesday should be prepared for up to six inches of snow over the Coast Range and at lower at or below a thousand feet. And weather models show heavy snow over the Cascades with Monday to Tuesday totals topping the uh, the foot and potentially closer to 16 inches. Not sure what that the elevation is where you live, but the National Weather Service has a chart that can help you see if snow is going to be in your future (coughs) in any event. Snow in February in Oregon, which isn't all that unusual, but it is surprising uh, when it comes. Spring is just around the corner. Well, the Oregon Supreme Court has denied the Oregon Attorney General's petition to overturn a Harney County judge's injunction to allow Measure 114 to go into effect. Well, the gun control measure remains blocked until a lower court holds a hearing. In its uh, ruling this morning, the state Supreme Court said our decision today does not serve as a bar to any future challenge in this court or otherwise an appeal. Measure 114 closes the so-called Charleston loophole. It requires background checks to be completed, not just started, before firearms are transferred. It also includes a ban on high-capacity magazines. It creates a new permitting system for all gun purchases. Uh, The Supreme Court, again, for the state of Oregon uh, earlier today said, we recognize that the legal status of Measure 114 is of significant concern to many Oregonians. Of course, it is the role of the judicial branch of government to resolve disputes such as challenges to laws enacted by the legislative branch, which includes the people exercising their initiative power. That resolution is underway in the trial court. 
Our only determination today is that now is not an appropriate time to exercise our authority in um, mandating a, a, a the connection with the trial court's temporary and preliminary rulings, end quote. Well, voters narrowly approved Measure 114 in November. It was set to go into effect in December, but gun rights groups challenged it in court and argued that it violates the Oregon Constitution. In January, the Oregon Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum petitioned the Oregon Supreme Court to allow at least part of the measure to go into effect after Harney County Circuit Court Judge Robert Riccio ultimately blocked all parts of the measure in a series of rulings in December. The Oregon Attorney General's office previously asked the Oregon Supreme Court to intervene after the uh, uh, measure was halted. The state Supreme Court declined to intervene, and so Measure 114 remains blocked at this moment. Well, the suspected Chinese spy balloon that the U.S. military shot down off the Carolina coast last week was part of a larger surveillance program run by the People's Liberation Army. That's according to a new report. The program has collected information on military assets in a number of countries, including Japan, India, Vietnam, Taiwan and the Philippines, U.S. officials reported. Uh, One official called the scheme a massive effort by China using an unbelievably old technology that it joined with modern communications and observation capabilities in an effort to gather intelligence on other countries' militaries. The program has carried out dozens of missions since 2018, according to the report. The balloons, which fly between 60 to 80,000 feet or higher, supplement China's long-range surveillance efforts that are typically conducted via military satellite array. The balloons are often equipped with electro-optical sensors or digital cameras that can sometimes capture highly precise images, according to the report. They also carry radio signals and satellite transmission capability. While the balloons don't use the most cutting-edge technology, they can hover over a single target for hours, providing an advantage over satellites that may have just minutes to take a photo while they orbit. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman briefed 150 people from roughly 40 embassies on the balloon program. That was on Monday, according to the report. U.S. officials have started debriefing officials in countries that were similarly targeted by the surveillance scheme, including Japan. Four balloons were seen over Hawaii, Florida, Texas and Guam in recent years, according to the report. And while several former high-ranking Trump officials pushed back on the Biden administration's recent claim that at least three Chinese spy balloons flew over the United States during the previous administration, officials have since said the balloons were only recently identified as Chinese surveillance airships. The Navy is working on cleanup of the debris from the latest balloon, a 200-foot aerial object that was seen hovering over sensitive military facilities in Montana last week. A device roughly the size of a regional jet was affixed to the balloon, according to the Northern Command um, head General Glenn Van Herc. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Pentagon first became aware of the balloon in uh, January when it entered U.S. airspace in Alaska. The Biden administration kept the discovery under wraps so as not to jeopardize Secretary of State Blinken's planned trip to Beijing. But the cat was out of the bag when civilians on the ground began to see and report Blinken postponed the trip on Friday, just hours before he was set to depart. He and the president decided it was best to postpone the trip in light of the unfolding situation with the balloon, according to officials. And while several Republican lawmakers called on the U.S. to shoot down the balloon earlier this week, including Representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia and Ryan Zink of Montana, 
The military waited to take down the balloon until it was over water off the coast of South Carolina due to concern from the Pentagon that the action could cause civilian casualties. More on that in just a few moments, but we do need to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the program, a classic interview with Pastor Wendell Robinson. He's the pastor at Mount Olivet Baptist Church and the author of Kingdom Moments, Hearing and Responding to the Voice of God. Well, Chinese spy balloons have violated countries' sovereignty on five continents, we have learned, according to Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, uh, adding that the U.S. government has already begun discussing last week's incursion over the United States with dozens of other countries. Blinken told reporters at the State Department that analysis of the remnants of the balloon that was shot down on Saturday and are now being recovered by the U.S. Navy off the South Carolina coast would be uh, paired with intelligence gleaned through careful observation while it floated through U.S. airspace in the days before it was downed. We're getting more information almost by the hour as we continue to work to salvage the balloon. We're learning from that and as well, we're learning from what we saw and picked up as the balloon traversed the United States, I would add, collecting vital information. Well, Blinken said the administration would share relevant findings with Congress and did earlier today and with allies and partners around the world. We've already shared information with dozens of countries around the world, both from Washington and through our embassies. We're doing so because the United States was not the only target of this uh, broader program, which has violated the sovereignty of countries across five continents. Well, as China engages in a rapid nuclear buildup as part of its strategy to achieve global dominance, the uh, uh, President Xi's 100-year plan. The Pentagon announced yesterday that the communist nation has surpassed the U.S. in the number of intercontinental ballistic missile launchers it has. The U.S. nuclear force was designed uh, over a, a, a decade ago to deter primarily Russian, not both um, Russian and China. And while the U.S. is modernizing its nuclear capabilities, it's not to the scale we will need to deter this growing threat. The Pentagon announcement uh, means that China has built enough missile silos or mobile launch platforms to exceed the 450 missile silos the United States has in the Midwest. The Pentagon clarified that China has not yet filled all of the missile launchers with the long-range missiles themselves, but now has the launchers uh, that they're complete, there will be a lot, the logical next step. As the former commander of the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, Admiral Harry Harris, testified before Congress just this week, China's dream of national rejuvenation by 2049 will have enhanced uh, their nuclear capability. In addition to this massive expansion of its ICBM force, China is cranking out nuclear warheads, has completed a nuclear uh, triad um of uh, land, air, and sea nuclear capabilities with the destroy, uh, deployment rather of a strategic bomber and is improving its arsenal of regional nuclear uh, missiles that can reach the U.S. island of Guam. It's also tested technologies previously unknown to Russia and the U.S. arsenals, like a fractional orbital bombardment system, which can circle the globe before releasing a nuclear missile on a hypersonic trajectory. For these reasons, the former commander of the U.S. Strategic Command Admiral Charles Richard stated, as I assess our level of deterrence against China, the ship is slowly sinking. Given the speed of China's nuclear buildup, he's probably right. Public imagery in the summer of 2021 first revealed that China was building over 300 new missile launchers. Given that China already has around 300 missile launchers in its arsenal, it's been a, a well underway with its new construction to be surpassed 
um, with the 450 launchers in the United States. Meanwhile, in another report, most Americans know the U.S. military is the most powerful in the world, and it has been for decades. This fact, however, gives false ideas about what our military is actually capable of today. For example, one might assume the military has massive stockpiles of artillery shells, bombs, and other munitions that would last through the duration of any war. The U.S. may find itself fighting. But the war in Ukraine has demonstrated that this is not the case. The U.S. began sending military aid to Ukraine early last February. By April, our stocks of Javelin anti-tank missiles and Stinger anti-craft missiles have been depleted by a third. If only two months of a uh, region, regional war consumed that large a chunk of uh, our critical munition stockpiles, it's easy to imagine the military would run out of these munitions if the U.S. ever faced down a competitor like China. The American, Air, the Army rather, Air Force and Navy, as well as the Marine Corps, each has a sophisticated planning process to determine how much of each kind of munition it should ha- keep on hand in case of war. The services base their plans on the Pentagon's estimations of what kinds of wars with which countries are most likely to occur. For years, however, the military services have budgeted less for munitions so that they could budget more for big-ticket items like tanks and fighter jets and ships. The stockpiles of munitions would last for only a few months of war. The wars are unlikely to last only a few months, especially if the two countries are the comparable military strength, just as Vladimir Putin, who is expected to overrun Ukraine in a matter of weeks. One example... Uh, this is is a cautionary tale. Well, enough of that. I look forward to the day when plowshares will be made out of what were once weapons. Anyway, newly elected Senator John Fetterman, the Democrat from Pennsylvania, has been hospitalized overnight after he reported feeling lightheaded. Um, his office announced later yesterday toward the end of the Senate Democratic retreat Senator John Fetterman began feeling lightheaded. He left and called his staff who picked him up and drove him to the George Washington University Hospital. A statement from his team said initial tests did not show evidence of a new stroke, but doctors are running more tests and John is remaining overnight for observation. He is in good spirits and talking with the staff and family. We will provide more information when we have it End quote. Well, Fetterman suffered an Uh, A stroke in May of 2022, just four days before the Democratic primary election in his state, which he won despite his condition. He then went on to defeat Trump-backed Dr. Mehmet Oz in the general election for the Pennsylvania Senate seat. However, the senator has um, admitted uh, since that he has struggled with recovery, enduring serious side effects from the traumatic brain attack at a campaign event in October Fetterman said that he dealt with auditory processing difficulties, making it difficult to comprehend or speak certain sentences. An NBC News interview with Fetterman back in October caused a stir when a reporter asked him questions about his stroke experience. The reporter explained on air that Fetterman's campaign required closed caption technology for this interview to essentially read our questions as we asked them and noted that in small talk before the interview without captioning, it wasn't clear he was understanding our conversation, end quote. Well, the exchange left Giselle Fetterman, his wife, in a rage over the report for which she demanded consequences for Burns. It was appalling to the entire disability community and I think to journalism, Fetterman said. But although he's running for a position in the U.S. Senate, it seemed an appropriate series of questions to ask someone to wield that kind of authority and responsibility. Well, across progressive media, journalists condemned Burns for the discrimination and stigmatizing disabled people, 
Criticisms were not consistent, however, ranging from insisting nothing was wrong with Fetterman to determining that his health condition was immaterial anyway. On the other hand, some outlets accused Fetterman's wife of puppeteering the campaign while downplaying the severity of her husband's medical problems. She referred to the stroke as a little hiccup on the same day Fetterman underwent surgery to have a pacemaker and defibrillator implanted. Uh, The condition of the senator is still under observation, and when uh, his condition is reported further, we'll report here as well. Keep he and his family in your prayers. Well, the former FBI agent, a special agent, delivered an emotional testimony before the House Subcommittee on Weaponization Thursday, telling lawmakers that she had resigned from the bureau after uh, it became politically weaponized. Nicole Parker, a former FBI special agent who served in the bureau from 2009 to 2022, reflected on her career, saying that she had felt she had been making an impactful difference. Every day I woke up and embraced being an FBI special agent until things changed, she said, adding that the FBI's trajectory transformed. On paper, the Bureau's mission remained the same, but its priorities and governing principles shifted dramatically. The FBI became politically weaponized, starting from the top in Washington and trickling down to the field offices. Although FBI employees have their First Amendment rights, they are not at the liberty to allow their personal political views or preferences to determine their course of action or inaction in any investigation, she explained. Lady Justice must remain blind. By the way, Lady Justice is blindfolded. Uh, Nonetheless, she went on to say, those that uh, do not uphold these responsibilities cause a negative ripple effect through the agency in the field. It says, uh, if there became two FBIs. Well, Parker said that the FBI, the two FBIs were headquarters based in Washington, D.C., and the field offices were the standard rank Uh, Work was uh, to serve the country, protect American citizens and fight crime. We have no interest in politics, she testified. She said that now there has been a loss of trust of the FBI by many Americans, causing low morale among employees. Well, she was testifying before a, a, a panel in Washington and the investigation will continue. The FBI has previously stated that it does not punish employees for expressing their views. She stepped away from the work for that very Uh, reason and her concern will continue to follow these hearings and any uh, outcome you're listening to the georgine rice show you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq hey welcome back you're listening to the georgine rice show coming up in our second hour a classic uh, interview with pastor wendell robinson pastor of mount uh, mount olivet baptist church and author of kingdom moments In a crowning moment, LeBron James surpasses Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as the NBA's all-time leading scorer. And definitively worse, Biden's State of the Union address is being touted as an economic success, but are Americans better off? Well, mixed answers to that question. Saying you don't belong here, Representative George Santos and Senator Mitt Romney engaged in a tense exchange in the moments leading up to the president's State of the Union address Tuesday evening. The exchange started when Romney, the Republican from Utah, was walking down the center aisle on his way to his seat and made eye contact with the controversial Santos, the representative from New York, who had a prized seat along the aisle. You don't belong here, Romney said. 
appears to say in a fully uh, full view of C-SPAN cameras. The State of the Union is widely televised and multiple angles caught the exchange. You ought to be embarrassed, as Stern Romney continued, prompting a brief exchange of words between the two lawmakers. Santos is facing a House Ethics Committee investigation for allegedly lying about his work experience and fabricating accolades throughout his campaign. President Biden's beefed up IRS is coming for waiters tips and a column arguing eggs are really cheap compared to 100 years ago. It's being blasted. Washington Post columnist Megan McArdle attempted to reframe America's concern over rising egg prices by arguing that when compared to prices from over a century ago, the prices today are relatively fair. Her Tuesday column, Why Eggs Are Cheaper Than You Think, acknowledged the soaring price of eggs in recent months, but provided additional context using data from as far back as 1896 to explain how eggs are still really cheap, historically speaking. The argument followed a previous Twitter trend in January that had social media users declaring eggs a luxury item, with people displaying photos of the prices as high as 11.49 for a dozen. Well, the article also received backlash on Twitter for appearing to mock kitchen table issues. Entrepreneur Kevin Dalton joked, I, for one, feel better about not being able to afford food for my family because my ancestors were much poorer than I. Huh. The media continues to mock you, radio host Carol Roth commented. Heritage Foundation economist Peter St. Ange wrote, Washington Post, quit complaining about eggs. It was worse in 1905 when the only thing you get uh, when the only thing you got is favorable comparisons to 130 years ago. I guess that's what you go with. Well, Speaker McCarthy hauled in millions for the House GOP for the first big 2024 fundraiser as he works to expand his fragile majority. California cities are being rattled by prostitution and human trafficking in broad daylight. Of course, a change in law can explain that. Running more tests, newly elected Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman was hospitalized overnight in Washington, D.C. And the Nets are uh, reportedly trading all-star Kevin Durant in a massive NBA deal. Well, House Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Michael McCall is vowing to stop the export of technologies to China and hold the Biden administration accountable for the chaotic and deadly withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2021 as his top committee priorities. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Republican out of Georgia, interrupted the president's second State of the Union address to shout, liar, after he said Republicans want to cut Medicare and Social Security. Other Republicans also jeered at Biden when he said the fentanyl crisis was killing more than 70,000 Americans a year. It's your fault, one lawmaker is heard yelling. Green responded to the incident Wednesday on Hannity, saying that she wasn't going to let the president come into the people's house and try to lie to the American people about the economy and the border. When he continued to uh, prevaricate, accusing Republicans of preparing to cut Social Security and Medicare, we couldn't take it. So I, along with my colleagues, were calling him out, she explained. Looked more like Parliament than the uh, House. Briefing scheduled. Congress received a classified briefing on the China, Chinese surveillance flight today. And 100% false. Representative Dan Goldman, a Democrat from New York, claimed during a House Oversight Committee hearing on Wednesday that the story of Hunter Biden introducing his father, Joe Biden, to a Burisma advisor when he was vice president was 100 percent false. The committee held a hearing about big tech's censorship on the bombshell New York Post story about the emails found on Hunter's laptop. Goldman, who gained fame as a lawyer during the first impeachment trial of former President Trump, took issue with the story that was released shortly before the 2020 elections. 
Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders delivered a response to President Biden's State of the Union speech. Sanders claimed that uh, Mr. Biden and his Democratic colleagues have failed the American people and declared that it's time for a change. Well, we'll be two years before that's a possibility. Well, Sanders focused her response on many of the culture war issues that have motivated conservatives and largely bucked the message of unity and bipartisanship that would uh, um, wound through the, the president's address. Instead, she attacked the president as the first man to surrender his presidency to a woke mob that can't even tell you what a woman is. Sanders criticized the president for his border policies, claiming that uh, they have led to a flood of fentanyl crossing the border and accused the administration of being beholden to woke fantasies. The U.S. Uh, surpassed the trade deficit record in 2022. The Wall Street Journal reports the U.S. posted its largest trade deficit on record last year. A global demand weakened amid high inflation, climbing interest rates, disruptions due to the Ukraine war and the pandemic's continued effect. America's imports exceeded its exports by $948.1 billion in 2022. That's up 12.2% from the previous year. The Commerce Department said Tuesday uh, exports increased 17.7% last year to $3 trillion, while imports rose 16.3% to $4 trillion. Data shows the Commerce Department's announcement comes the day the president's um, address was to be delivered. Bill Gates is defending his climate hypocrisy. Climate advocate Bill Gates recently attempted to justify using private jets by noting his investments in various green technology initiatives. In other words, you can pollute the air as long as you have enough money to offset it. But the rest of us who don't, well, you need to stay home. The Microsoft co-founder spurned accusations of hypocrisy during an interview with the BBC in Kenya uh, broadcast on Friday, claiming that his decision to spend billions of dollars on climate innovations, such as carbon capture systems, more than accounts for his personal carbon footprint. Hmm. So he can pay for his personal carbon footprint. Gates has already invested over $2 billion toward climate technologies. This includes investments in direct air capture. In addition to solar energy and nuclear fission, private jets are 5 to 14 times more polluting per passenger than commercial planes. One private jet can emit two tons of CO2 within an hour. But if you have money, it's all right. The IRS proposed restaurants report tips Uh, The Internal Revenue Service proposed a revenue procedure this week to crack down on the service industry's reporting of tips. The Service Industry Tip Compliance Agreement Program would be a voluntary tip reporting system in which the IRS and service industry companies cooperate. As part of the proposal, the IRS will give the public until early May to provide feedback on the program before implementing it. According to the IRS, the program would seek to improve tip reporting compliance, reduce administrative burdens, and provide more transparency and certainty to taxpayers. The Virginia House approved legislation keeping schools accountable to parents regarding gender dysphoria. And Zoom is preparing to undergo massive cuts. They announced Tuesday that it was cutting about 1,300 jobs, a 15% reduction of its workforce. Zoom CEO Eric Yuan said that the company didn't take as much time to understand whether it was sustainably growing, adding that the uncertainty of the global economy pushed it to look inward to reset ourselves so we can weather the economic environment. Germany, Denmark, and the Netherlands are planning to provide Ukraine with a fleet of tanks 
The three countries will supply Ukraine with as many as 178 older generation Leopard 1 battle tanks and the latest shipment of heavy military equipment to Kiev as they're bracing for an expected intensification of fighting with invading Russian forces. China wants its balloon back, release the pieces that are collected. They condemned the shooting down of the balloon as an obvious overreaction and urged Washington to show restraint. When asked on Tuesday whether China had asked the United States to return the debris from the downed balloon, Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Mao Ning said the balloon belonged to China. This balloon is not American. The Chinese government will continue to defend its legitimate rights and interests, she said at a regular presser. Former Twitter executives testified before the House uh, Oversight Committee. Uh, former Twitter C- uh, officials acknowledged that blocking the spread of uh, a news story about Hunter Biden's laptop was a mistake. We'll tell you more about that in a moment, but do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our 5 o'clock hour, a conversation I had with Pastor Wendell Robinson from Mount Olivet Baptist Church. She's the author of Kingdom Moments, Hearing and Responding to the Voice of God. Well, the Church of England will look into the use of gender neutral terms to refer to God in prayers. But the centuries old institution said on Wednesday there were no plans to abolish current services. The issue reflects growing global awareness about the assumed usage of pronouns causing offense or upset to those who do not identify with the gender they were assigned at birth. Christians have recognized since ancient times that God is neither male nor female, a spokesperson for the church said. Yet the variety of ways of addressing and describing God found in Scripture has not always been reflected in our worship. Well, the Church of England is considering alternatives to referring to God as he after priests asked to use the gender neutral terms. Now, in one um, town hall reports, now in one church, the Lord's Prayer could soon be passe as uh, the push toward gender neutral language goes beyond the ivory towers, government buildings and health care systems. Well, the FBI believes Catholics who prefer the Latin mass are white supremacists. The FBI believes that white supremacy has taken root in Catholics uh, who prefer Latin mass, reports whistleblower Kyle Serafin on Undercover D.C. The FBI's Richmond, Virginia office took their findings from the widely debunked Southern Poverty Law Center, which was cited in an intelligence bulletin. Catholics who prefer Latin mass who are classified as radical traditionalist Catholics per the FBI are painted as having an adherence to anti-Semitic, anti-immigrant, anti-LGBTQ and white supremacist ideology. Huh? Well, the SPLC claims it does not brand Christian organizations hate groups merely because they oppose same-sex marriage, but many of its accusations boil down to a disagreement with that very issue. The SPLC branded the Ruth Institute an anti-LGBT hate group in part because its founder, Jennifer Roback Morris, called homosexual activity intrinsically disordered, pulling a direct quote from the catechism of the Catholic Church. The FBI has since come back and said, well, we're not accepting the um, the description from the SPLC, uh, but it uh, was, in fact, a memo that they were working on. We'll try to get an update on the status there. The death toll in Turkey and Syria has hit 20,000 while destroying 10,000 buildings, and that number has probably gone up as well. The pair of earthquakes that rocked southern Turkey and northern Syria earlier this week had claimed the lives of at least 17,000 people as of Wednesday morning. In quick succession, um, 
the magnitude 7.8 earthquake struck uh, followed shortly thereafter by a magnitude 7.5 tremor destroying uh, 10,000 plus buildings and now a death toll of some 20,000. Turkey has developed 60,000 personnel with hundreds of thousands of tents, mattresses, blankets and pillows. There are people from the U.S. there helping with efforts and others around the country as well. With Republicans now running the House, they're free to confront the president's mismanagement, and no area of mismanagement has been worse than the handling of the southern border. Well, this week, the House Oversight and Accountability Committee opened a hearing on the president's border crisis with a number of Border Patrol agents giving testimony. Democrats deflected from the president's um, border uh, activity with their typical attack, accusing Republicans of being motivated by xenophobia and racism. Democrat uh, committee members posted a social media message that read, good luck to everyone except GOP oversight members who are using today's hearings to amplify white nationalist conspiracy. Everything essentially can be distilled down to white supremacy. It doesn't matter what the issue is, whether or not it's justified or not. Um, it's all really at its core. White supremacy, according to critics. Well, I hope these hearings are successful uh, because there is a serious problem on the border. Republicans warn that the president's massive spending uh, dubiously named the Inflation Reduction Act would lead to the Internal Revenue Service going harder after middle class Americans. Thanks to its allegation of about 80 billion dollars, a windfall for the tax collecting agency. Uh, Democrats and uh, Biden himself dismissed the claims as false, asserting that the addition of the 87,000 IRS employees would be primarily focused on going after wealthy tax cheats. But, of course, there aren't enough wealthy tax cheats to occupy all 87,000 new IRS employees. Sarah Huckabee Standards, uh, Sanders rather ripped the president's woke fantasies in the GOP State of the Union rebuttal. Congressional Black Caucus members wore 1870 pens to honor slain black people. The number marks the year that Henry Truman, a black man, was shot and killed by a Philadelphia police officer. It's the first known instance of a police officer killing an unarmed free black person in the U.S. ABC, CBS, NBC continue to skip unflattering Hunter Biden news as the hearings loom. And Fed Chair Powell says there is a long way to go in the inflation fight, calling the U.S. debt unsustainable. U.S. credit card debt jumped 18.5 percent and hits a record $930.6 billion. Nearly two-thirds say that they're worse off than two years ago. And New York City lifted its vaccine mandate for city workers but won't reinstate fired holdouts. 368 were arrested in Southern California in a task force human trafficking sweep and Seattle's defund police and records uh, records rather the highest crime rate in 15 years. The State of the Union address drew the second smallest audience in decades and lawmakers pressed Twitter executives on the FBI's role in censoring the Hunter Biden story. A former Twitter exec admits using a disappearing message app with government officials and Pulitzer winner Seymour Hirsch claims the U.S. Navy is behind the Nord Stream 2 pipeline explosion. Disney is planning to cut thousands of jobs to save money as DeSantis is set to take control of the company's Orlando district under new law. A new bill, rather. A New Jersey Republican councilman was shot dead one week after a councilwoman's slaying. The founder and chairman of Project Veritas, James O'Keefe, is reportedly on paid leave as the organization's board considers whether to oust him from his leadership position. In an internal message to staff, the organization's executive director, Daniel Stark, Strank, rather, 
said that O'Keefe is taking a few weeks of well-deserved PTO, according to the New York Magazine. Like all newsrooms at this stage, the, the Project Veritas Board of Directors and Management are constantly evaluating what the best path forward is for the organization, Strack reportedly said in a statement. On this day in history, 1825, the House of Representatives elect John Quincy Adams president after no candidate receives a majority of electoral votes. 1861, Jefferson Davis is elected provisional president of the Confederate States of America at a Congress held in Montgomery, Alabama. 1942, the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff holds its first formal meeting to coordinate military strategy during World War II. 1942, daylight saving wartime goes into effect in the United States with clocks moving one hour forward. 1950, in a speech in Wheeling, West Virginia, Senator Joseph McCarthy, the Republican from Wisconsin, charges that the State Department is riddled with communists. 1964, the Beatles make their first live American television appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show, broadcast from New York CBS. 1964, G.I. Joe action figure is introduced at the American International Toy Fair in New York. 1971, a magnitude 6.6 earthquake in California's San Fernando Valley claims 65 lives. 1971, the crew of Apollo 14 returns to Earth after man's third landing on the moon. 2005, Hewlett Packard Company Chief Executive Carly Fiorina is forced out of uh, by board members, ending her nearly six-year reign. 2009, President Barack Obama, Obama rather uses his first news conference since taking office to urgently pressure lawmakers to approve a massive economic recovery bill. Also in 2009, the New York Yankees' third baseman, Alex Rodriguez, he admits to taking performance-enhancing drugs, telling ESPN he used banned substances while the Texas Rangers are with the Texas Rangers for three years. And finally, on this day in history, 2017, a federal appeals court refuses to reinstate President Trump's ban on travelers from seven predominantly Muslim countries, unanimously rejecting the administration's claim of presidential authority, questioning its motives and concluding that the order was likely to survive legal, unlikely to survive legal challenges. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming here at the top of the hour. When we return, a conversation with Pastor Wendell Robinson from Mount Olivet Baptist Church. His book, Kingdom Moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. As I mentioned yesterday and earlier in the program today, I've been looking forward to the conversation we're about to engage in. Uh, with a pastor I have a great deal of respect for. He has just written his first book, and I'm delighted to talk about that. The ministry of the church he is now the senior pastor of. I'm referring to Wendell Robinson, senior pastor at Mount Olivet Baptist Church. He is the author of Kingdom Moments, Hearing and Responding to the Voice of God. And aren't we in a season in which we need to hear and be willing to respond to the voice of God? It's a devotional that I think you will find very helpful as we are pressing into God in the midst of the challenges uh, that we face here in the 21st century. Pastor Robinson, such a pleasure to have you. Welcome. The pleasure is mine. I'm so excited to be here with you um, and to have the opportunity to share what the Lord is doing in, uh, in our life as a church in my life as a, one of God's sons, and what he's doing in this city. Very excited. Well, I, you are a native son. You are from the Portland yes, area. Yes, I am. Yes, and I am. have you been associated with Mount Olivet throughout your, um, your adult uh, ministry life? I found or Mount Olivet or 
The Holy Spirit found me in <laughs> 1989. I was born again in 1988 in the streets of Portland on the corner of MLK, like I said, and Lombard in my mother's Audi 4000, listening to the wine-ins yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And uh, it was a supernatural encounter with God. And from that point, probably about six months later, my wife and I made our way to Mount Olivet, probably about a year after Dr. James Martin, the former pastor, was there. Well, you have been involved in ministry for a number of years. You've shared the good news in East and West Africa, in Mexico, in Central and South America, the Caribbean. Uh, you have been involved in uh, significant missional work for a, a period of time. Talk a little bit about your background and your history uh, sharing the gospel in places outside of our local community. Well, it started in 2002 when the Lord had called us to leave Mount Olivet, which was a very difficult thing because uh, my folks lived there. My children were very young. Uh, he called us to leave Mount Olivet to live in Puerto Rico. Now, it doesn't seem very far, but you know, for a city kid that born and raised in Portland, I knew nothing about Puerto Rico, didn't know where it was, and we didn't speak Spanish. And so we left in 2002 to start working there. Then we uh, started um, a nonprofit organization called Reaching the Nations. From that point, uh, we were based in Puerto Rico ministering uh, in a church plant. Uh, And then we started to work in West Africa, Nigeria, Ghana, the Republic of Benin, under the leadership of uh, Dr. Virgil Amos, who was the former founder of Ambassador Fellowship, one of the very few African-American mission organizations in the country. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did all kinds of work in West Africa. Uh, From there, um, we started to launch into East Africa. That would be Kenya and Uganda, doing um, evangelism, uh, community development. I I would uh, do various um, revival meetings. uh, And it just kind of went on and on from there. uh, We left... Puerto Rico, probably in 2009, and my family and I, we moved to Atlanta, and we started to partner with a a mission organization that was in partnership with North Point under the leadership of Andy Stanley. Hmm. Uh, And from there, we started to work in Haiti, um, Honduras, um, and that kind of went on for a number of years. And then eventually, the Lord brought us back to the great Pacific Northwest, and we partnered with another mission organization in Vancouver called Forward Edge and started to work in Cameroon and Mexico and um, Puerto Rico again, uh, where else? Nicaragua, Kenya, uh, and and a number of other places. Uh, So so. a Portland boy who comes to Christ in the (laughs) 80s is quite comfortable in Portland, hears God's call, ends up in Puerto Rico, and then the ends of the earth, if you will. Absolutely. Just faithfully serving him in whatever capacity he would call you to. Whatever capacity, with little kids. Yeah, yeah. How did that help prepare you for the pastorate? You have been for, I think, about three years, the senior Mm -hmm. pastor at Mount Olivet. You're familiar with the congregation. I am. You're familiar with the community. How did your work abroad prepare you to come back home and serve as a, a missional pastor? Yeah, absolutely. Well, while I was serving as an associate pastor in the late 90s, early 2000s at Mount Olivet, I mentioned the Lord called us out. I was also in seminary finishing up, and um, I was in an MDiv program, and the Lord told me to switch my program from an MDiv program to an MA intercultural program. And I couldn't figure out why, but he said the church 
uh, for the future is going to be missional. And I didn't know really what that meant at the time, but I faithfully uh, changed majors, uh, finished out in a, with an MA in intercultural studies, and then the Lord sent us off. So I really believe that our journey around the world following Jesus um, through various countries and various cultures and various languages is ripe for the church today. Uh, where God is calling his sons and daughters to kind of get out of the building and get into the community, into the streets, to reach across, um, you know, the street across the world, to begin to relate to people of all different um, cultures and kinds of uh, backgrounds. And Portland is that kind of place. Uh, one of the most diverse culturally uh, in, in the country. And uh, I, I just believe this is a perfect place to be missional. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, you you mentioned that you heard the voice of God. You changed your major while you were in seminary. And this really, I think, is a reflection of the book that we're going to be talking Absolutely. about in just a few moments. Kingdom Moments, um, hearing and responding to the voice of God, hearing you as a pastor say that I heard the, the Lord uh, tell me to change my major. Uh, for some believers that, well, he's a pastor, of course, that he would exactly. hear the voice of God and he would give direct. At the time, of course, you weren't a pastor. No, you were a follower of not. Jesus seeking to honor him and out of obedience listened and, and changed your major. But we're going to we're going to be talking in just a few moments about what it means to have a kingdom moment, how we can attune our hearing so that when the voice of God speaks to us, we recognize it and then we obey. That's right. Uh, and that's that's a real challenge. You begin the book talking about an event that took place in the summer of 1983. And it was tragic. I mean, just reading it for me was traumatic. Yeah, <laughs> you were in an accident and you heard the voice of the Lord speak to you. You you suffered this accident. Um, it was uh, different than normal, the way you heard the, the Lord speak. And under those circumstances where this is taking place in a matter of seconds, you had a kingdom moment. Can you describe that uh, that event? Absolutely. Now, it's important to note that I, I wasn't a Jesus follower even then. You weren't a follower of Jesus. I was not, and that's uh, uh, particularly important because the Lord is calling us long before we say yes. Yes, that's and right. And many don't be- uh, understand that, that the, the grace and the salvation call precedes the decision. And so I was in a, a really uh, traumatic accident where I was uh, riding a motorcycle down a side street. Um, uh, it was very dark. Uh, a, a, a truck came uh through an intersection that I didn't stop for and hit me on my right side and drug me about a half a block. Mm. Uh, the, the truck couldn't stop because apparently the, the gentleman didn't, hadn't uh, put brake fluid in the, in the truck. So he kind of rolled to a stop. And this was a matter of seconds, but in a moment when I was hit, uh, I heard a voice. Uh, now, in hindsight, I know it was God. And the moment, I don't know if I was even thinking other than I heard a voice specifically tell me what to do. And he said, do you want to live? And I said, yes. And this is all internal. He said, well, you need to do what I tell you to do, otherwise you're going to go the way of your motorcycle, which went under the car or truck and was mangled. And so he said, tuck your chin to your chest. Or first he said, grab the bumper with both hands so that you don't go the way your motorcycle went. So I did so. It was a flat, beveled bumper, uh, kind of from an older vehicle. Then he said, um, tuck your chin to your chest so that your head doesn't bang on the concrete. And so I did that. And then the last thing I remember hearing was, um, 
pray that the truck doesn't run into anything. Um, I don't remember particularly praying, but that was the last thing I remember. The truck rolls to a stop. I realize I'm alive. Um, my leg was clearly broken, kind of in a mm. seven shape with my foot going upward uh, and me laying on my left side. Um, and I pulled my leg off. The lower part of my leg dangled because it was a compound fracture where the bone was protruding out of the skin. I Sat up, I put it in place. The man jumps out of the car. He's frantic because he thinks he kills me. And I, I rattle off my father's home phone number. Uh, and then the next thing I remember, because uh, I did kind of go into a little bit of a blackout, um, is being in the ambulance on my way to the hospital. Um, that was in, gosh, that was in 1989. No, 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 I'm sorry, 1984. Um, while I was still in college at Oregon State University. Needless to say, I couldn't go back. But it wasn't years later that I realized that I had a kingdom moment. God met me. Now, you kind of have to decide what you believe, but there's no doubt in my mm-hmm. mind what I experienced. And um, that has been our experience since. And I believe it's can be the experience of every believer, not just vocational professionals. Amen. We're talking with Pastor Wendell Robinson. He's senior pastor at Mount Olivet Baptist Church and the author of Kingdom Moments, Hearing and Responding to the Voice of God. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break, so stick with us. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Pastor Wendell Robinson. He is the senior pastor at Mount Olivet Baptist Church and most recently the author of Kingdom Moments, Hearing and Responding to the Voice of God. And we are in such a desperate season, I think, in the body of Christ and in the culture in general, that we would hear and respond to the voice of God. You described before the break uh, your first kingdom moment, and this predated your uh, profession of faith. That's correct. But you recognized that God was preserving your life. You had purpose. God Absolutely. had places for you to go. Absolutely. Um, you were unaware of it at the time. And I would imagine for listeners to this program who are not followers of Jesus yet, this may be a surprising thing or it may confirm an, uh, an experience they have had. Absolutely. Why do you think God spoke to you before? And you talked a little bit about this a moment ago. Why do you think God spoke to you to preserve your life before you had even come to acknowledge him or to know him or to recognize his voice. Yeah. Well, in a nutshell, uh, God <clears throat> wants all of his creation to come to himself. And what I found is that he goes uh, to great lengths to reach us. Yes. Um, and <clears throat> I always tell people that we haven't beat God anywhere. He is everywhere, and he's working in people's hearts even before they know it. I call it persuasive grace. It's the romancing of our hearts. And and so if we if we really stop and examine our life, I think many people, particularly those who don't know Christ, would see signs of God calling them to himself. They just might uh, mistake it as something else. Um, but for me, it was it was pretty clear. And for for everyone, it may not be as profound. But nevertheless, he is uh, actively pursuing his creation, humanity, uh, that they might come into a saving relationship uh, with Jesus. 
We've been uh, talking about or at least referencing your book, Kingdom Moments. I believe this is your first book. Very first book. I'm pretty excited. First of many. (laughs) First of many. Yeah. Prayerfully. Um, Kingdom Moments, hearing and responding to the voice of God. I think the challenge of hearing God's voice and being able to distinguish his voice from our own or voices that might be misleading or uh, might mimic his, but isn't entirely um, entirely clear. How do we hear the voice of God? Where do we begin? And I know your devotional kind of walks us through that process so that we become practiced at recognizing the shepherd's voice. How do we begin in that process? Well, I think it's important first to demystify or mm. um, another way of saying it is de spookify it. <laughs> but we don't want the conversation about the voice of God to be uh, mystical or spooky. It's very normal. It's it's a part of the everyday normal Christian life for if you're a son or a daughter. And you can actually substitute voice of God for the way in which he communicates. He wants to communicate to us in ways in which we will understand. The, the scripture says that uh, his sheep know his voice. And that's the Greek word phone, which is the English word phonetic. In other words, he tailors his voice in a way in which we will understand because he doesn't want what he has to say to us to be a mystery. He's not trying to play hide and mm-hmm. seek with us. He truly wants us to know. And so uh, there are the uh, familiar ways that he speaks. We say through his word as we're reading his word. Um, he speaks through people. Uh, every day, uh, many believers go to, to churches or they watch churches or, or sermons online, and he uses people to speak. He, he speaks to us through prayer. Uh, he also speaks to us in our dreams uh, and in visions. And, and, you know, that requires some explanation, but it is definitely biblical. Uh, he speaks to us, uh, like Elijah, uh, with that still, small voice. I call it Holy Spirit nudges. Uh, that's that internal movement, uh, sometimes visceral, that lets us know, hey, I need to talk to you. Uh, how do we discern? Because everybody has that question. How do we know it's not just me? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I say, you know, when he speaks to us, he speaks to us in our own voice. When when I hear him, I'm not hearing a female voice. You don't hear, hear James Earl Jones. No, absolutely. Low, it's deep. not that low, deep, <laughs> yeah. low. No, it, it's it's my own voice. Uh, how do we know? Well, one, uh, we have the Holy Spirit. He lives inside of us. He's going to give us the ability to discern uh, uh, what is God speaking to us and what might just be our own thoughts. Uh, and a lot of it really comes down to relationship. It, it says he will know us and we will know him. It's it's a relationship. Uh, we can't put our, our faith on autopilot. You know, our faith is, is not meant to be uh, a routine. It's a relationship whereby we hang out with the Lord, whatever that looks like for you. But we spend time just like we would spend time with someone we care about. Mm-hmm. There's a familiarity that, that occurs by where, by where we hear, we understand that it's Him speaking. And then uh, as we grow, we, we, we try. We put into practice that which we've heard, and you'll know um, uh, that he speaks because it'll bear fruit. 
In the book, Kingdom Moments, Hearing and Responding to the Voice of God, the other half of that equation is responding. It's one thing to hear the voice of God and that's just, right. oh, that's interesting. I appreciate, you know, that's right. I appreciate the voice, but responding. We're talking yeah. about obedience and being prepared to respond. How do we um, how do we prepare to walk in obedience and to respond when God speaks to us through his word, through that voice uh, that the Holy Spirit clarifies is the voice of God guiding us in one direction or another? Yeah. And that's kind of where the rubber meets the road. Uh, Once you sit down with a a Jesus follower uh, and talk through the nuances of hearing God's voice, hearing his communication, Many will say, yes, okay, yes, I do hear. Uh, They'll start recalling situations. Mm -hmm. But where the rubber meets the road is once we determine that he has spoken, are we willing to do what he says? And that's where it gets tricky. It gets tricky because we have our way of living our life. And we have our thoughts about what we want to do. We have our dreams. We have our hopes. We have our uh, desires, uh, but they may not be in line uh, in alignment with what he wants for us. And so often we are unwilling or afraid to respond because we'd rather just do what we want to do. And that's the tricky part. Uh, I know when he called us to leave everything that meant anything to us in Portland to go to a land I will show you, which was Puerto Rico, <laughs> That was hard. Mm-hmm. That was hard. It wasn't what we had planned. It wasn't. It wasn't what the pastor who I was serving had planned for my life. But when he looked in my eyes, he realized it was a Jesus calling. And um, but it did require us to move our agenda to the side. I remember for the first year, my wife cried mm. for the whole year because it was that difficult. Um, and, you know, but the thing is, he, 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 he calls us to obedience. He thanks us for our sacrifices, but the scripture is clear. He prefers obedience above sacrifice. Uh, and, and, and so obedience is his clarion call to, to the beloved. And it's hard. It's scary. Um, it's uncertain. But you can trust him. That's right. You can absolutely trust him. And sometimes we don't see that until uh, we look back in the rearview mirror of our lives. You know, they say hindsight is twenty twenty, um, But history shows, if we look back, his faithfulness. And if he's done it once, he'll do it again. He is faithful. We're talking about the book Kingdom Moments, Hearing and Responding to the Voice of God. My guest is Pastor Wendell Robinson. This is his first book. He's the senior pastor at Mount Olivet Baptist Church. We'll continue our conversation in a moment. So if you can, stay with us. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm Continuing my conversation with Pastor Wendell Robinson, we are so grateful that he's right here in the Portland area for now. 
Uh, God has him as the senior pastor at Mount, Mount Olivet Baptist Church, and he's just released or will soon release on the 10th of October, Kingdom Moments, Hearing and Responding to the Voice of God, his first book. I want to talk a little bit about the structure of the book. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned it's a devotional. It's intended to be a study from one week after another. That's correct. Um, and uh, you design it in such a way that um, we're not just reading, but you have lessons and things we can write in to help reinforce the message that mm-hmm. um, that the Word and, and God is, is teaching us. Can you kind of describe how it's laid out? Yeah, and this is really important. Uh, in, in all of my teaching, there's three basic principles that we try to live by, personally and as a church, um, and that is revelation, demonstration, and activation. Revelation being, what, what did Jesus say? Demonstration, what does it look like? And then activation, what are you going to do about it? It's the idea of... Um, Pairing hearing and doing. Mm-hmm. If you if we separate hearing and doing, then uh, let's just say we we err on the side of hearing. Then we become professional hearers, and that immediately will put you in the lane uh, that the Pharisees were in. Uh, ever learning, never coming to the knowledge of the truth. He says that we should not just be hearers of the word, but we should be doers. And so I wanted to write it in such a way that. Uh, gave beautiful revelation, um, also that demonstrated or showed what that looked like through the Word and through personal testimony, but then also challenged the believer to kind of dig in for themselves Mm -hmm. into the Word and then ask the question, what are you going to do about it? And I specifically took that idea of revelation, demonstration, and activation, and I, um, I put three components in the book that says learn from Jesus, live for Jesus and love through Jesus. Go and do. And so you'll see that consistently all the way through the book. Learn from Jesus. What is he saying? Live from Jesus. What what are you what is he doing? Um and then love for Jesus. What what are we going to do about it? Uh, that's the 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 basic structure that hopefully moves us just uh from hearing into the arena of actually doing um, what the Lord has said. And the Holy Spirit is a part of that whole process. Absolutely. I so appreciate that emphasis because I think as church-going believers, we oftentimes become spectators and we might hear a good word. Oh, yeah. You know, it penetrates our heart. We're moved, but that's where it ends. But God is calling us, you know, the the church equips the saints to do the work of the ministry. God is calling us to respond in practical ways to see our neighbors as those who uh, may not have access or may not know uh, the God who loves them and pursued them and has extended his grace to them Absolutely. to respond in such a way that's practical. And what you do in the book is give us kind of the, the toolkit to, to walk through not just hearing, but responding in a way that's honoring to him and will minister to others as well. And that there's something so satisfying about mm. the adventure of following Jesus Absolutely. in these practical and tangible ways. Absolutely. And th- this is the beauty of it. it, it it's, uh, it's for every single ordinary believer, me included, you included. We're, we're regular folks. Yep. We're ordinary people, as I say, that God wants to do extraordinary things with by way of the Holy Spirit. My wife and I were just eating um, at Sherry's for breakfast, one of our favorite little spots. And um, we had a wonderful breakfast. Um, and as we were finishing up, the, the, the lady who was waiting on us um, came to give me the check, and I felt that nudging. 
Uh, and as you spend time in the word and, and with the Lord, you, you get to know mm-hmm. what he's saying. And the, the impression was simply, she needs, uh, to know that I see her. That's what I heard. And she needs to, uh, you to pray for her. And so, uh, sheepishly, and I'll admit, I don't go into this with great boldness. It's like, oh gosh, not again, Lord. <laughs> um, I said, ma'am, um, we're Jesus followers. Uh, would you mind if we pray for you? And immediately she starts bawling. Oh. And she begins to talk about her son and his wife and their grandkids. Um, and, and, and so we just simply, I said, can, can we do it like right now? And she said, yes. You know, there's people around. And so we prayed for her as she's weeping and she just thanked us. That was it. He didn't ask me to witness. He didn't ask me anything more, but to pray for her because uh, perhaps in her time alone, she's wondering if God even hears. Um, And that's, that's what hearing and responding to the voice is all about. And that's what kingdom moments helps facilitate. Mm -hmm. My prayer is that um, it'll be kind of a jumpstart in people's faith. I've heard people say things who have pre- do, did a pre-read. Uh, I feel like I'm born again, again. Uh, this uh, refreshing, this renewal, this personal revival, that's really uh, at the heart of, of Kingdom Moments. You describe yourself as a revivalist, and you've just used the word. Can you explain what you mean by that and the hope that's attached to being uh, someone who sees revival in our future? Yeah, I, I hope every believer would uh, look at themselves as a personal revivalist. I, I believe uh, there's still a, another great outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we can expect. Mm. Um, as in days of old, uh, in the Old Testament, when, when things weren't right, um, God's judgment was swift and it was harsh, and uh, he would wipe out whole civilizations. Uh, he doesn't do that anymore. He, he he gave us the rainbow as the, the Noahic covenant, the saying, hey, I won't do that again, won't flood the earth. Uh, instead, I'll pour out my spirit, as Joel reminds us, upon all flesh. And so we don't have to despair that things are falling apart or God's uh, losing his grip on humanity. That is not the case. Uh, he is loving. He is patient. He's working in people's hearts. But there will be outpourings. Of his spirit. And I believe uh, that it'll be in the hearts of many where we uh, embrace what God is doing and we simply respond in faith obedience right where we are in our marriages, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our churches, everywhere. You, you, there are so many opportunities to respond to God uh, outside of the four walls of the church. I do it all the time. Sometimes I'll hang out in my front yard. Uh, tilling up the same weed until a neighbor comes out just for an opportunity <laughs> yeah. to say hello instead of just driving into the garage and letting it you know, close behind me and go into my house. Mm. Hearing and responding to the voice of God. One of the things that impressed me whenever I, I looked you up and I was reading different things, there's always mention of Lisa Robinson. Oh, yes, wife. my beloved. Can you, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Because I know all of the success that you have had in your travels and in ministry yeah. really is a partnership. And I don't want to overlook the role that she has played in um, in the ministry that Absolutely. you and she together have Absolutely. been involved in. She, too, is a native of Portland. Uh, I'm a Grantonian and she is a, I don't know what the name of their mascot is, but she went to Cleveland High School. And uh, the crazy thing is uh, we were dating um, in the late 80s. Uh, 
Uh, we didn't know Jesus, but uh, in a crazy way, apart from one another, unbeknownst to one another, we both found Jesus at the same time. Mm. And then it was only later that in our dating, we kind of sheepishly shared, not sure how the other was going to respond, that we found Jesus. Amazing. And so um, she's been a, a great uh, Jesus follower. She's been a, an amazing wife of now 32 years of three adult sons, uh, Caleb, who is my eldest. He's 27. My middle son, Josiah, he's 26. And my youngest son, Eli, is 22. Um, he has worked in her life equally as powerful. Mm-hmm. Like this is our story. This is not just my story. This is our story. When I first got called into ministry in, in 1988, um, no, no, it was 95. Yeah, 95. It was by way of a dream. And I won't go into the details of the dream, but again, God spoke. I was so excited. I was a commercial banker for U.S. Bank of Oregon. I woke up and I said, Lisa, I had this crazy dream. And I told her the dream. And she said, "Wonder you won't believe it. I had the identical same dream. Wow. And that is how he's met both of us when we were called to the mission field. Uh, he, he met us separately. And then we came together and said, you won't believe what just happened. And it's like our history with him. So he's used her powerfully. She's bilingual like I am. He, he used her powerfully in Puerto Rico, even though she, uh, uh, agonized because she's a very um, uh, in, introvert mm-hmm. kind of a person. Mm-hmm. She's really quiet, but don't let her meekness uh, be mistaken for timidity or, or unwillingness. She's uh, equally been willing to follow the Lord. She's given up a lot uh, to kind of follow this crazy guy called Wendell. Um, but we're partners in crime, so to speak. Um, <laughs> when people see us in the community, they always typically see us together. It's very rare that you see us apart, even uh, whether it's shopping um, or just doing stuff. We we just find a great joy in being together. And she's uh, been with me in, in uh, gallivanting through Africa. Uh, it, she's a, an incredible uh, human being, a, an awesome Jesus follower. And um, uh, she is finding her own place and space at Mount Olivet. Um, I've promised that I wouldn't cast her in a particular role, but I'll let her gifts make room for her as the yes, scripture says. Yes. Um, and it's happening, you know, it's happening. I, I, I tell her all the time that, um, that the fragrance of heaven follows her. Like when she comes into a place, you'll know she's been there. Um, and so I look forward to seeing how the Lord's going to use her. Um, apart from what I'm doing, I believe she has some, books to write. I believe uh, she has some blogs to write and podcasts to do. Um, I can't wait. Yeah. Well, I I always um, take note of how uh, the man of God makes reference to his wife. And my respect for you um, was elevated when I saw how she was referenced in the materials that I, uh, that I, um, that I looked up. So I appreciate that very much. Well, the book we've been talking about kingdom moments, hearing and responding to the voice of God, pastor uh, Wendell Robinson, the book will be available on the 10th. You can pre-order at um, let's see official slash Wendell Robinson.com. And I'll put that on our 
uh, Facebook page and kpdq.com, so you don't need to remember that. But that will be available on the 10th, but you can pre-order, and I would encourage you to do that. It's a devotional that will transform your ability to hear and respond to the voice of God, and I think give you hope uh, looking forward that God is at work, that he is going to revive, and we're going to see him uh, move in ways that perhaps will surprise us all, Mm -hmm. uh, but certainly are consistent with what his word has to say. Pastor Robinson, thank you so much, not only for being here today, but for faithfully serving in the church here in the Portland metro area. We so need your faithful leadership, Mm -hmm. and I just want to commend you, encourage our listeners to pray for you when you come to mind, you and your your wife in the congregation, because we need one another here in the body of Christ in the Portland metro area. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. All right, we are going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I appreciated Ben Shapiro commenting on the uh, Grammys this weekend or last weekend or whenever it was. In any event, lots of people just don't watch it anymore for reasons that I don't need to explain. If you've ever seen them or you've followed them in recent years, you know why people are sort of off of the Grammys. But this year, there was an effort to um, produce a shock and awe performance. Shapiro writes that this week, the Grammys were held in Los Angeles, as they usually are. They featured a star-studded cavalcade of singers who can't sing, songsters who require a team of dozens to write their songs, and dancers Well, who struggled to dance? They also featured a full on satanic ritual on stage starring used to be just a gay dude, then queer, gender queer, now gender binary singer uh, Sam Smith and a transgender female translation biological male Kim Petrus. Well, their song is titled Unholy. They won the best pop group group performance, their performance in which the um Rotund Smith donned a satanic outfit and top hat with horns while Petrus gyrated in a cage surrounded by Satan costume strippers made headlines for its transgressive imagery. One of the networks said, we are ready to worship. The goal, of course, is to tweak people of traditionally religious bent, draw a response and then act offended. Why can't you just leave us alone? Cry our cultural elites as they demand our attention. We're all supposed to be shocked, and of course, that is the point. But the fact that the performance is so unshocking should be the true shock. The Grammys were sponsored by major corporations. Shadow President of the United States and world's greatest physician, Dr. Jill Biden, showed up to present an award. And CBS tweeted an anticipation of the satanic routine, we are ready to worship. But the truth is that Satan is so in right now. After all, Satan's message has become our society's personal authenticity requires the destruction of all traditional mores and the trashing of all intermediate institutions of Western civilization. To be free means to live without rules or boundaries. And our truest heroes are those who say, as John Milton's Satan did, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, end quote. Milton meant his um, his Satan to be a villain, rejecting the good, true and beautiful in favor of personal power. But we have followed the path of dissolute romantic poet Percy Shelley, who argued Milton's devil as a moral being is as far superior to his God as one who perseveres in some purpose, which he has conceived to be excellent in spite of adversity and torture. End quote. 
Sure, Milton's devil provided no good to anyone, including himself, but he stood up to the strictures of the outside objective moral code. It was Shelley himself who argued that religion and morality, as they now stand, compose a practical code of misery and servitude. The genius of human happiness must tear every leaf from the accursed book of God ere man can read the inscription on his heart. End quote. How different are the musings of Shelley from the less sophisticated musings of Smith and Petrus at the Grammys? As Smith says, it's really just about how I feel, or Petrus. It's a take on not being able to choose religion and not being able to live the way that people might want you to live. I was kind of a hellkeeper, Kim, end quote. Well, God makes demands on us. He suggests that there is a higher truth to which we are subject Rules and roles we ought to obey for purposes of societal strength, spiritual durability, and personal fulfillment, not to mention that we are created in his image and are his to command. Satan makes no demands on us beyond the surrender of our reason, our higher aspirations, and our souls. Milton's Satan rebelled against God. Today, those of godly bent are increasingly fighting a rebellion against the truly dominant spiritual power of a narcissistic culture that prizes self above all, celebrated by a transgressive, monolithic culture. And so were the Grammys just a few days ago. Emmy Griffin also weighed in, pointing out that the satanic Grammys, they're not even hiding it anymore. There's so many things to discuss when you think about the Grammys opening number with Satan Smith and or rather Sam Smith and Kim Tim Petrus, a man who identifies as a woman. Smith and Petrus won a Grammy for best pop duo group performance this cycle. What was the award winning song? Something beautiful and meaningful? No, the song is called Unholy. And between the content of the lyrics and the visual vulgarity of the music video, the only positive remark that can be made or can be said about the song is that the tune is catchy. Otherwise, there's nothing artistic about it. But of course, these days, that's considered, well, edgy and attractive. Giving Unholy an award is a statement that this music represents the best our culture has to offer. Besides being downright disgusting, the elite are, yet again, glorifying the ugly, which seems to be the trend for modern art these days. The song's content is about an unfaithful husband, materialism, explicit sexual content, and self-worship. Their performance of the song at the Grammys was a satanic ritual complete with hellfire, demonic acolytes, whips, cages, devil horns, and red and black lightning. The lightning in particular was kind of like Joe Biden's Independence Hall speech, where he insinuated that anyone who disagrees with his uh, radical policies is a threat. Well, CBS apparently knew that what was in store for the performance when Smith posted um, on social media about his impending performance. CBS responded with, you can uh, say that again. We are ready to worship. The post has since been deleted. A lot of people didn't like it. Well, after the performance ended and went to commercial, guess what company pops up as a sponsor for that unholy segment? Pfizer. Not even joking. Well, then there was the obligatory standing ovation at the end of the performance. After a performance that was mediocre and intentionally offensive, people stood and clapped. Many of them probably approved of the performance, though uh, we're sure there were some who only clapped and stood because they were afraid of what would happen if they didn't. Isn't that so common that you stand and clap because others do it and you're concerned about what others might think if you don't? God give us courage and a backbone. 
It was a vulgar and offensive display meant to shock, but it's hardly even surprising anymore. Other artists have beaten Smith and Petrus to the punch. After all, WAP, which won a Grammy in 2021, had a very similar theme and aesthetic. If it's already been done, why repeat the process? Because these explicitly amoral and transgressive songs, well, they're what these elite are wanting to glorify. It is a larger commentary on the desire to promote worship of self, which ultimately is worship of Satan. Part of the problem with the setting of the exceptionally low bar for the arts is that politics has invaded it. Jill Biden even presented an award at the Grammys. Who knows if she knew that performance was part of it. Political analyst Brandon Moore said that mainstream entertainment industry is boring and over politicized. It's filled with people who seem less interested in creating something that could last through the ages and more focused on getting, well, specific reaction from a certain group. Another such analyst, Victoria Marshall, has a similar sentiment, writing, Art can be no longer uh, subversive once the political and broader media establishments espouse its values, whether those be sexual perversion or anti-religious bigotry. Good art can't be created when the striving for the good, the beautiful, and the true is taboo. Artists are trapped by their groupthink, and any divergence is frowned upon. The provocation of people who love their God, their country, and their values was obvious. However, the lack of actual art was nothing new, which, despite all the transgressivism, is reflected in the ratings. People are no longer, uh, no, no longer, or rather are longing for good stories, for good art. They long for something more eternal. And this insistence by the cultural elite that the open rebellion to all that is good, beautiful and true, literal Satan worship, is a tawdry waste of time. Hmm. Two good summations of the most recent Grammy performance, Unholy. James Blend is a producer today, Sam Maupin engineer. want to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Hope you'll join us tomorrow as we take a look at the lighter side of the news and share this week's Christian Outlook. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.